0: Compare women's fashion in the 1930s with the 1920s and you get the impression that all the fun had gone out of designing. Everything seemed so much more grown up. Women's clothes became less daring, perhaps even dull. Was fashion's loss of nerve just another result of the Great Depression? Or was something much more interesting going on? Hello.
1: Hello Why did fashion become so much more conservative in the 1930s? By the end of the 1920s, hemlines had slipped down from the dangerous heights of 1926 and waistlines had resumed their natural place. The gamine figure of the flapper had grown up. Read your fashion historians and you'd have the impression that the 1930s was a quiet time in which the shoulders became more architectural and fabrics cut on the bias were more flattering, but not much else changed. Until the end of the decade, hemlines doggedly stayed at the calf during the day and by the ankles in the evening. It was all rather, well, cautious.
0: Now, the obvious explanation you'll often read for the conservatism of 1930s fashions was the worldwide economic depression that followed New York's Wall Street crash of 1929. It sounds so obvious. The sears May catalogue of 1930 commented gloomily, "'Thrift is the spirit of the day. Reckless spending is a thing of the past.'" But this is a case of believing the obvious and accepting what contemporaries said before we've checked out the evidence.
1: Now, it's true that average unemployment in the States during the 1930s was somewhere between 18 and 26%, depending on which economists you believe. During the 1920s, it had been between 5 and 8%. The employment situation was bad too in Europe, where, like the States, there was a horrible spike in unemployment immediately after the crash. In 1930, Sears were right to be gloomy
0: But the situation is much more complicated than this. In America, France and Britain, for example, real wages for those who were in work, the people who were actually buying fashionable clothes, actually went on to be higher for much of the 1930s than they'd been in the 1920s. More women also went out to work, and you'd expect this too to have an effect on the way they bought their clothes. And you have to add that the boom of the 1920s had always been confined to a relatively small section of society. They were the same people who were the least affected by the bust of the 1930s and which was exactly where the fashionable end of the clothing industry sold its products. For these people, the 1920s and the 1930s were not as different as they nowadays seem to us.
1: Now, we could spend a frustrating day or two sitting late into the night trying to disentangle the calculations of competing economic historians over what happened in the 1930s. But as a simple explanation of what happened to fashion in this period, the Depression doesn't quite do the business. After all, who said the fashions in the 1930s were cheaper? The fact is that women in the 1930s were wearing fuller, more complex clothes that would have cost them more than a sack dress from the booming 1920s.
0: Frills, layers and ruffs were in. Waists became more nipped and you had to wear undergarments in the new elastic fabrics to keep yourself in you could emphasise the new broad-shouldered look and your tidy waist by adding a bolero jacket, a capolet or a shrug. You could accentuate your hips by a V-shaped upper skirt yoke and by 1938 by a bustle or at least a large ribbon at the back. If you were confident enough of your curves, you could dress in figure-hugging silks, satins and creped sheen cut on the bias for maximum cling.
1: Now the truth was that this could all be rather expensive – As Fiel and Dirick say in an analysis of 1930s fashion, it was anything but the fashion of austerity. And even if you could get away with the cheap copies that were being sold in standard, ready-to-wear sizes, annoyingly, sizes were different then for each company, but cheaper than employing a dressmaker, you still needed more in your wardrobe in the 1930s to keep up.
0: There were trouser suits, pyjamas, slacks and beachwear. You might, even if you were lucky, have smart workwear for your job in an office. The slow-changing, showy, but rather carefully showy fashions of the 1930s can't be explained away just as a result of gloomy economics. So why was nobody willing to experiment in quite the wild way they had in the 1920s? But the more you think about
1: it, the odder it becomes. Everybody knows that Coco Chanel was at her creative peak in the 1930s. And right across from Chanel in Paris's Place Vendôme was Elsa Schiaparelli, the first woman fashion designer to make it to the cover of Time magazine and in her day almost as widely known and copied as her designer neighbour. It was Schiaparelli who created those padded shoulders, or copied them if we're honest, from Indo-Chinese at the 1931 Exposition Coloniale. Her Paris Salon was wilder and, well, pinker than Chanel, and her catchword was shocking. That's where shocking pink comes from. I suppose if you collaborated with Jean Cocteau and Salvador Dali, you'd be shocking too. Since, we're told, Chanel and Schiaparelli dominated the fashions of the 1930s, it seems inexplicable that there should have been such a loss of creative courage on the catwalk in that decade.
0: So it's time to look around the room, broaden our conversation, draw up some more chairs. We think the secret to the conservatism of fashion in these years lies outside the world of Parisian haute couture. It's in the work of another great designer, not French, but American, a man someone very few outside the world of fashionistas have these days ever heard of. During the 1930s, he had far more influence over what most women wore than either of his more famous French rivals. During these years, he was known simply as... Adrian.
1: Adrian Adolf Greenberg came from Connecticut, And found the New York School for Fine and Applied Arts so dull his teachers packed him off to their campus in Paris. While he was still a student there Irving Berlin hired him to design costumes for his Music Box review. He launched an unstoppable career. In 1924 when Adrian was just 21 he was picked up by the set and costume designer Natasha Rambova to design costumes for her husband's film Sainted Devil.
0: Rambova's original name was Winifred Shaughnessy But in 1924, she happened to be in the middle of a brief marriage to Rudolf Valentino, who was then at his peak as a silent film star and sex symbol. Adrian was immediately commissioned to design for other Valentino films. The next year, 1925, he was chosen to put together a show for the opening Friday night of the new Chaplin movie, Gold Rush. His chorus girls went down well with the assembled moguls, or maybe it was the dancing seals that did. Either way... By Monday morning, the designer had five
1: new job offers. Out of those offers, Adrian, he insisted on using just his first name, chose to work with the film director Cecil B. DeMille. Within a couple of years, he'd become DeMille's head costume designer. Perhaps his most famous creation of DeMille was the sexy serpentine bra for Mary Magdalene that caused a sensation in DeMille's King of Kings. This was 1927, and Wilde was still fashionable. Happy days.
0: The next year, DeMille joined MGM and Adrian went with him. In 1930, they turned out the studio's most expensive production of the year, a boudoir comedy called Madame Satan. Angela, played by Kay Johnson, whose brief film career had begun the year before, suspects her husband Bob of cheating, especially as he has a ticket to a dodgy-sounding costume ball on an airship moored in New York. The main attraction is a mock slave auction of scantily dressed young vamps.
1: Angela decides to fix herself a place in the lineup as Madame Satan and wow her husband Bob back. Kay Johnson's father was the architect of the Woolworth Building on Broadway, until 1930, the world's tallest building. She may have known a thing or two about a good party above the New York skyline.
0: Anyway, Adrian designed for her an outrageously skimpy number that was meant to represent a volcano. For another of the partygoers named Confusion, Adrian designed a dress with a mile and a quarter of silk net joking that he'd like to see the Parisian Couturier tried that.
1: So far then, so outré. The spirit of the booming 1920s was still alive and strutting. All however was not quite as it seemed for Madame Satan, and we'll come back to that later. All we need to know now is that the film bombed at the box office. Soon after, DeMille quit MGM for Paramount, but Adrian stayed and became MGM's chief costume designer. Over the next decade, he would clock up over 200 films. He was responsible for a bewildering number of outfits, from the 1,200 costumes and 5,000 wigs and outfits for two poodles required for the film Marie Antoinette, to Dorothy's gingham dress and ruby slippers for The Wizard of Oz. It was Adrian who designed them all.
0: Signing a contract that stipulated his credit would read, Gowns by Adrian, he worked with Ingrid Bergman, Jean Harlow, Barbara Stanwyck, Lana Turner, Marie Dressler, Myrna Loy, Norma Shearer, Jeanette MacDonald, and every other famous name MGM signed up. By 1939, he was Hollywood's most prolific designer, by far.
1: Adrian was perhaps best known as designer for Greta Garbo and Joan Crawford, both on and off screen. He worked with Garbo on Mata Hari and Grand Hotel, Queen Christina, Anna Karenina, Camille, Conquest, and many other movies, turning her rather ungainly figure into an icon and working around her refusal to be seen in fur, velvet, lace, or a low neckline.
0: It's said that Adrian designed almost everything Joan Crawford wore from 1929 to 1943, creating for her a characteristically strong-shouldered look. It reached its apogee in The Women, a film which starred an all-female cast of 130 and featured Adrian's gowns
1: in a 10-minute fashion show. From the time he became MGM's costume chief, however, Adrian shared his 1920s exuberance. His 1930s designs for Garbo, Crawford, Harlow, Hepburn and the other stars were elegant and mature, but never racy. Some of the daring had gone out of his film star fashion. And this turned out to be crucial for the clothes that women bought on the high street.
0: During the 1930s, Adrian's designs for MGM were, if not exactly sensible, then certainly not sensational in the style of Madame Satan. And this mattered for the fashion industry, especially on the high street.
1: There had always been a close connection between early Hollywood and the rag trade. Many of the first movie bosses had started out in the clothing business. Louis B. Mayer had sold second-hand clothes. Harry Warner had repaired shoes. William Fox had been an inspector of glove-making fabric and Samuel Goldwyn had run a glove store. So, film and fashion went, well, hand in glove. Now, An American study in 1928 showed that between 80% and 90% of all purchases were made by women. Studies at that time also showed that a majority of cinema-goers were women and that when the boyfriend came too, he'd usually been dragged to something she wanted to see. So the women's market was massive business. The potential for shifting merchandise, and especially clothes, through what appeared on screen, was immense.
0: Studios actively negotiated concessions and placements with big names like Macy's or mail-order catalogs like Sears and Roebuck. You could go into a department store and find Miss Hollywood or Studio Styles and buy what you'd seen on the screen last night. The impact on women's fashion was potentially huge.
1: So then... It was no surprise that the slouch hat and trench coat that Adrian gave Garbo in the 1928 film Women of Affairs made it straight into women's wear daily and spawned dozens of imitations. When Garbo wore a beret for the kiss in 1929, so did everyone else. When the next year she wore an Empress Eugenie hat in romance, so did everyone else. Even if, as Matahari she put on a jewelled skullcap or a veiled pillbox as Catherine Kerber Fane in the painted veil, so did everyone else.
0: In 1932, Adrian designed a white organdy gown with ruffled sleeves and huge puffed shoulders for Joan Crawford in Letty Linton. Copies immediately appeared in Macy's New York, and there it said they shifted half a million of them. Adrian had not only created perhaps the most widely copied dress of the decade, but had persuaded women everywhere that they needed to have those big shoulders. It was something that Elsa Schiaparelli could only have dreamed of. And Adrian had done it in a film that was withdrawn almost immediately, ironically, on a charge of plagiarism. So of all the designers working in the 1930s, you could make a strong case for Adrian as the most influential of them all. Which
1: brings us to the question. Why, after a period of fun-loving 1920s madness, did Adrian settle down to a 1930s conservatism that was not exactly dull, but was, shall we say, comfortable? a conservatism that seems to have seeped into the whole fashion industry. So why did Adrian, MGM's chief fashion designer and responsible for many of the most influential fashions of the 1930s, lose his 1920s daring and settle into something more comfortable?
0: Well, at the simplest level, Adrian had to work with the stars MGM had chosen, he had, for example, to make Norma Shearer appear to have long legs and slim hips, not least because she was the boss's wife. Adrian's signature coat hanger shoulders and elongated silhouette did exactly that. Just as important, if MGM's lucrative clothing concessions were going to sell dresses to the ordinary girl in the high street, they had to cover up their short legs and big bottoms too. So Adrian kept hemlines low and waist-high and narrow in designs that every girl on the street could recognise and hope to possess even if she would have to forego the trappings and sequence. But we need to look further. We need to go outside the narrow discourses of the fashion industry if we're to understand why fashion took a conservative turn in the 1930s. By discourses, of course, we mean the ways people think and their ways of doing things in any
1: particular period. Let's think for a moment about what was going on in the film industry. Adrian was designing for the camera at a time when cinematography was still a basic art better film stocks and the arrival of colour, even if it was only for selected sequences, were less forgiving than the old black and white film of the 1920s, where a generous layer of make-up and something from the actress's own wardrobe would often do. What was needed was detail that photographed well in mid-close-up. So Adrian added frills and ruffs around the shoulders and necklines. Hats also made a big impression, and as we've seen, Adrian experimented with them too. Camera lenses tend to broaden their subjects a little, and so less-than-perfect legs were best covered up, and big bottoms given a bow in disguise. The 1920s boyish flapper was too unfrattering a look for most of MGM's stars and too monotonous for a studio turning out hundreds of features a year. What was required was something slimming and glamorous, but clearly structured. And that Adrian was brilliantly able to do.
0: There was also a time lag between production and release, By modern standards, 1930s films were turned out with astonishing speed. A few at the bottom end of the B-movie shelf were shot in a week. Over little more than 15 years, Adrian worked on over 250 films. Even so, it would have been impossible for him to keep his girls up to date in a -a twice-a-year catwalk-led fashion market. Everyone remembered the shock when hemlines had dropped suddenly in the Paris winter fashion salons of 1929. Hollywood studios had had to junk thousands of expensive reels of film they'd already shot.
1: At that time, in 1929, MGM's response had been to offer Coco Chanel a million dollars a year to design for Garbo, Dietrich and Swanson. But after only three films, Chanel's designs were panned as dull or dropped altogether before the shoot started. Clearly, designing for film was different from haute couture. If your studio wanted to cash in on all that merchandise, it was best to hire your own designer and keep things straightforward. You needed costumes that would look good for more than a few months. And there was plenty that a talented designer like Adrian could do with a veiled pillbox and a jazzy art deco cut to the collar without changing the whole darned ensemble.
0: So part of the reason Adrian's designs were on the careful side of adventurous was that they had to read well on camera, especially in close-up and mid-close-up. They had to flatter leading ladies who were actresses rather than models, and they had to stay in fashion long enough to get the films done and distributed and the high street merchandising into action. Even so, this can't be the whole explanation. After all, films from the 1920s and even the early 1930s, when cinematography had been even more basic, had been willing to experiment. Look at Madame Satan, made in 1930, the one with the airship.
1: And given Adrian's key position in the market, it's perhaps surprising he wasn't willing to cut his cloth more adventurously, if only to give MGM's spin-offs more of a competitive advantage in the fashion market. Anyway, aren't we always told that Hollywood films during the Great Depression were supposed to be escapism at its most glamorously, harmlessly wonderful? Well, the story turns out to be more complicated than that.
0: In her book, Fashion and Femininity in 1930s Hollywood, Sarah Berry shows how the role of the screen heroine began to change in the late 1920s. The arrival of sound in 1927 changed everything. Female leads had to become fully developed characters and what, argues Berry, most women now went to the movies to see with or without their boyfriends was not escapism, but aspiration. Joan Crawford made a career playing poor girls who made good. In Dancing Lady... From 1933, Fred Astaire's first movie, she played a stripper who lands the lead in a Broadway musical. In the 1937 film The Bride Wore Red, she was a cabaret singer who successfully poses as an aristocrat. Again and again, she plays a working girl who makes it to the top, not through a clever marriage or strings pulled by a wealthy father, but through hard work and smart gowns by Adrian. It was what the girl in the plush seat wanted to see... It wasn't escapism, but a female edition of the American dream. You too can do this. You too can make it. If you do your job and if you look the part.
1: Now to maintain the illusion, Adrian's gowns had to be glamorous, but recognisably the kind of thing that you or Nancy next door might have. The trick also had the advantage that versions could be manufactured on a price line. The same design mass-made for a variety of budgets. Conservatism was built in. And one thing Adrian's star clients always loved about his gowns was the way they reflected their personalities. This too suited the mass market. Nancy Nextdoor's mum had grown up buying clothes for different times of day, morning, afternoon, evening. But by the 1930s, Nancy was buying her clothes to express the way she felt about herself. And this meant that when Adrian innovated, he had to do it carefully.
0: Now, yearly fashion cycles are perhaps the oldest example of built-in obsolescence. By 1930, Other kinds of manufacturers had learned the trick too. It was a way of making something old look new. This year's Studebaker automobile is basically the same as last, but just look at your neighbour's face when he sees the new colour. Women were the prime target for this kind of marketing because they did most of the shopping and also because research done by advertisers at the time apparently concluded that the average woman had the intellect of a 14-year-old. Nice. By the 1930s, Film fashion was playing a version of the same game as automobiles. It was complicated because it was trading on women's aspirations. It touched that sense that you too can make it, you too can do this. Film fashion therefore couldn't be out of reach. However much Stardust was thrown in and even if the colours changed a bit, Adrian's gowns had to reflect what women already
1: wanted. Gowns by Adrian were a glamorous, besequined break on the market because they were designed for the narrow frame of the camera, because of the window of production times, and because they couldn't break too radically with what the girls in the back row were already wearing and could buy at Macy's. There was, however, another perhaps even more compelling reason. When comedian Fatty Arbuckle was accused of murdering the starlet Virginia Rap, something had changed in Hollywood.
0: Roscoe Conkling-Arbuckle was an actor always known as Fatty, for obvious, if ungenerous, reasons. In 1921, he'd been charged with the murder of Virginia Rapp. He was acquitted after three trials and a lot of unpleasant speculation about how he'd crushed her while making love. But the affair produced a string of sordid tales about Tinseltown, around which a good many moral questions had already begun to hang not least from the on-screen bathing scenes and orgies of Cecil B. DeMille's films like Male and Female and Manslaughter. Moral reformers caught the whiff of scandal. In 1922, a Presbyterian elder and former postmaster, Will H. Hayes, H-A-Y-S, was given the astonishing sum of a 100000 a year as chairman of the new Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America and told to clean the place up.
1: Hayes was hopeless. As the 1920s good times rolled, Hollywood stars like Clara Bow literally spread their legs and bared their breasts, for example in the 1927 film Wings, and created the image of the sexually liberated flapper. Hayes did nothing about it. In 1928, Joan Crawford first hit stardom dancing the Charleston while pulling on a pair of lacy knickers. It was the opening shot of a three-part series, Our Dancing Daughters, Our Modern Maidens and Our Blushing Brides, which a trio of young jazz-age things drank, danced, displayed and debauched their way into marriage.
0: By 1930, however, when the trio finally got hitched in Blushing Brides, Hollywood had moved on a step. In that year, under pressure from the Catholic Church, Hayes Motion Pictures Producers and Distributors Organisation had been forced to accept a new production code. It was a 12 part list of commandments drawn up by the Jesuit Father Daniel Lord and a prominent Catholic journalist Martin Quigley.
1: Now, far from a backwards blast from the pulpit, the New Hayes Code was based on up to date communications theory and moral philosophy. It set out to nurture the young and protect women and reflected a widespread moral consensus in the States. Some of it now looks horribly dated. For example, its ban on white but not black slavery, on miscegenation, meaning sex between races, and on adultery if it was presented attractively. But the Code also requested nations and faiths be respected and banned cruelty to animals and children. It sensibly asked producers not to show cinema girls how to murder, crack safes, commit arson or smuggle, and urged them to treat surgical operations with good taste.
0: And of course, the Code had a lot to say about sex but even here you can hear the Jesuit and his friends straining to be reasonable. Dancing was fine, unless it suggested sexual actions or indecent passions. Undressing should be avoided, but it was allowable if it was essential to the plot. Complete nudity was banned, even in silhouette, but beyond that, the code only forbade indecent or undue exposure, which left at least some room for a wriggle.
1: When it appeared in 1930, the code was completely ignored. The years from 1930 to 34 are known to movie buffs confusingly as the pre-code years, and in some ways they are among Hollywood's wildest. Studios were faced with crippling debts from having to buy the newfangled sound gear. Post-Wall Street Crash movie attendances had dropped in some places by 35 percent. Six and a half thousand out of 19 and half cinemas had closed. Studios were desperate for better box office. Universal tried a run of horror movies, Dracula, Frankenstein, and musicals like Whoopee. Warners experimented with post-Capone gangster titles like The Public Enemy and Scarface. DeMille had Claudette Colbert bathe in milk and flash her breasts in Paramount's Sign of the Cross. RKO found an anodyne formula with Rogers and Astaire but then terrified and titillated its audiences with King Kong at the top of the new Empire State Building with a scantily clad Fay Rei in its paw.
0: In their search for ratings, all the studios pushed the new code on vice, adultery, sex, drug use and anything else they chose. By 1933, wrote one screenwriter, the code was not even a joke anymore, it's just a memory.
1: In 1934, however, after Joan Blondell had run around Convention City in her underwear, and a scene from the story of Temple Drake had to be cut because it depicted rape with a corn cob, the pressure from the Catholic Church finally broke through once more. Enforcement of the Hayes Code was put in the hands of a new production code administration under a tough Irish Catholic journalist called Joe Breen. From 1st July 1934, no film could reach the screen without a license from Mr. Breen's office. And that turned out to be no pushover at all. Not for nothing would Breen be described as the supreme pontiff, or Pope, of motion picture morals. He even had the cartoon girl Betty Boop put into a long skirt. For the next three decades, Hollywood had to clean its act up.
0: The case of MGM, where Adrian was designing from 1928, however, is different from the other studios. MGM was by some distance the largest of them and made its name from classy, elegant movies. By far its most prolific producer was part owner, head of production and Norma Shearer's husband, Irving Thalberg. Thorberg had always insisted on a minimum of good taste. He pioneered focus groups to watch early cuts and reshot where the audience verdict wasn't good. Although only 31 in 1930, he'd also been involved in the writing of The New Code and his studio seems to have tried harder than most to work with it. That's not
1: to say that MGM was completely immune from the so-called pre-code slide into unrestrained experiment. It was when Tarzan's Jane, played mostly by Maureen O'Sullivan, but in this sequence by body double Olympic swimmer Josephine McKim, swam nude in the MGM's 1934 Tarzan and his mate, that the Catholic head of steam finally blew the whistle once again. But even here, MGM had shot at least three versions of the sequence, clothed, topless and nude. Louis Mayer went to the court to defend it and lost, but the scene had always been intended to be easy to replace or delete.
0: More often, however, MGM's output was distinguished in its careful handling of the code's bête noir. Take Madame Satan. You recall the Cecil B. DeMille party in the Dirigible, for which Adrian had designed one of his most outrageously sexy costumes? This was 1930, the moment when the new code was being debated and accepted by Hayes' office. The new MGM film was not quite the immoral romp, it appears. Noting the objections of a then-Hollywood censor, the improbably named Colonel Jason S. Jory, Adrian's gowns were toned down with the addition of a lot of body stocking. The party is disrupted by a thunderstorm and the airship is struck by a bolt from above. That'll show him. The partygoers grab parachutes and float down into the Central Park Reservoir. The baddie lands in the zoo's lion enclosure. So despite some suggestive skirt billowing in the final descent, the moral balance has been restored. Our heroine wins back her man. All is well with America's moral consensus.
1: At MGM, therefore, Adrian was designing his gowns in an atmosphere of institutional moral caution. Even in the pre code years before 1934, his MGM bosses, and especially the young but very influential Thalberg, were more inclined than their competitors to take a conciliatory line with their moral critics. There was, at the very least, a strong incentive for Adrian to keep things decent. No wonder his designs became more unadventurous.
0: And one way to produce exciting but safe movies was to concentrate on historical subjects. And by 1933, that was exactly what NGM had begun to do. That year, Garbo starred in Queen Christina, set in the 17th century. Between 1935 and 1937, she went on to feature in three 19th century blockbusters, Anna Karenina, Camille and conquest. In 1936, Adrian even fitted Joan Crawford in a crinoline for the gorgeous hussy. And of course, Adrian could very conveniently fit out his historical costumes with those big sleeves, long skirts and bum concealing bustles that were proving popular with Nancy next door and her friends. No wonder frills, layers and ruffs became fashionable. Historical pastiche was a perfect way to keep the glamour going even when Mr Breen had done his worst. It was a potent reason why, in the second half of the 1930s, bare shoulders, just the shoulders, corsets and crinolines became big in the fashion
1: trade. The influence of Breen and the Hayes Code were a compelling reason why hemlines stayed where they were and dresses achieved glamour through the addition of detail rather than subtraction of surface area. Why, after all, asked movie executives, test Mr Breen's patience when you didn't need to. With plot lines that at least attempted to tackle real issues of love and loss, there were more important battles to win than arguing with the censor over frocks. Adrian should stick to dressing the stars in something sensible.
0: In 1929, a businessman in Muncie, Indiana, told a sociologist that he could no longer tell much about the young woman he interviewed from the way they dressed. Whether their backgrounds were rich or poor, they all looked the same mass production, standard sizing and a revolution in shopping had made fashion accessible to all, at least on that side of the Atlantic. These new American women consumers were a powerful economic force wooed and targeted by the dream makers of Hollywood. Once female stars could speak, there followed a decade of movies in which poor girls made good and strong women chose the way they looked. The gowns they wore were a compromise between affordability And aspiration, familiarity and glamour, star quality and the demands of the Hayes Code. It wasn't a recipe for uninhibited innovation. For MGM, at least, that turned out to be no bad thing. Between 1931 and 1940, MGM returned 75% of Hollywood's total profit and made Adrian the most powerful designer of his day.
1: We argue that Adrian's turn towards safer on screen styles had a profound impact on the world of fashion. By 1936, Liberty magazine was reporting that Joe Breen, the man at the census office, had more influence in world thinking than Mussolini, Hitler or Stalin. It was perhaps a forgivable exaggeration. By then, Hollywood, and especially the output of MGM, had colonised the Western world and overtaken fashion with everything else. What women wore in the 1930s had in practice more to do with Adrian's quiet and careful engagement with Mr Breen's code than with the brilliance of Chanel or Scaparelli in Paris's Place de Vendôme. For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have.